Hi, listeners. We're back with another episode of Understand SC. This week, we're talking about the protests here in South Carolina sparked by the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis and years of police brutality. I'm Memory Parker. And I'm Emily Williams. We're joined today by reporters Greg Yee and Sarah Coelho, who cover crime and breaking news for our quick response desk, and also photographer Gavin McIntyre. All three of them have been reporting on the ground from these protests. They've witnessed peaceful marches and violence and confrontations with police that involved tear gas and arrests. And I will say also some of them have experienced the tear gas themselves. So thank you to all of you for your reporting this week and also for joining us today. So I know we're going to cover all of it, but I think where I want to just jump right in is um, Saturday night in Charleston. And I know, Sarah, that's what you covered. And uh, when we were getting ready to record this, we were kind of chatting about it. And I think the, the main question that I have is, how did it go from peaceful to what we saw Saturday night? It kind of happened in bits and pieces. You know, people were out there for a long time. We started at 2 p.m. at Marion Square, and there were a couple incidents here and there throughout the afternoon. Police tried and eventually gave up on trying to keep protesters from going down King Street. And there were two counter-protesters whose hats were taken. They were kind of cornered against the wall at a building near Marion Square, and um, they had some Trump hats and a flag, I think, that... Um, The crowd took and burned and then landed some punches. But really where it seemed to escalate overall was when we came back from the highway. Uh, We marched down King Street and ended up at Mother Emanuel AME. And that's really where emotions seemed to rise. No one was, you know, angry at that point. But, you know, it's such a personal thing. People were calling out about the people they'd known who had died there at Emanuel AME talking about how this was, you know, their community specifically, and especially how Dylan Roof, who killed them, was led away in handcuffs and perfectly safe. From there, we went to the market, and that's where things, you know, started getting a little vandalizy. The tables at the market were kind of dragged out into the street, and a lot of them knocked down. And as the protesters there were talking about how slaves had been sold there and slaves had built the city— It's kind of unclear who this person was, but a white man in the back of the crowd. Um, I'm not sure if he did something at that point or if people knew him from something else, but they pointed to him and said that he was a racist. And several people went after him, tried to land some punches. And then when police intervened, that's really when um, tensions escalated. So at that point, some rocks were thrown into the shop windows down there, and we eventually moved from market back toward Marion Square, but every step of the way from there on out was accompanied with shots and things thrown at nearby cars and shop windows. You know, a lot of people were probably following the situation pretty closely on Twitter, but a lot of people probably were not. Uh, I think for a lot of people who weren't necessarily following the the specific moment-to-moment details, they became aware of the, the situation Basically, when all of the local channels here in Charleston started broadcasting scenes from pretty much the the intersection of Calhoun and um, King Street, which is like right where the Francis Marion is, right where the Walgreens is um, and the Marion Square. And that was where we we started to see some things that I don't think I've ever seen in Charleston before. We, We saw police like firing tear gas. We saw protesters, you know, picking up rocks and and you know throwing them at windows so walk walk us through that transition like how how did we get from from people you know being a little bit angry and a little bit vandalizing as you said to to that scene that started playing out on on tvs across the area sure once we got to the corner of calhoun and king police really kind of formed into kind of the lines and the batons and everything that we were seeing later through the night, that kind of organization that was clearly aimed at keeping the protesters contained in parts of the street. Um, So they started with the tear gas um, of maybe an hour after nightfall, and they stayed down at Calhoun while a lot of protesters to get away from the tear gas and also just to regroup and be together went up King Street. 
Um, for a long time, uh, things were at a standstill there. The protesters were throwing some water bottles at police and police were throwing gas canisters. And I guess we were there for probably a couple hours. I'm not sure what led people to start going up King from that point. But um, we really started at Hotel Bennett, picked up some big rocks from Marion Square and started throwing them through the windows. Um and then really within a matter of minutes, uh, we were headed up King. Things escalated very quickly. And then uh, as people got up by Hall's Chop House, that's when some shots were fired. I remember I was sitting in my room at home watching watching all of this unfold on, on all of the, the TV channels. And uh, that was that was, to me, the scariest moment. I, I wasn't even there, but just hearing hearing those shots ring out and seeing people start run and the, the TV reporters start to run. Um, what was going through your mind in, in that moment? Well, I was about eight feet away from the door of halls where we now know an employee stepped out and fired shots into the air. Um, I wasn't facing it, so I didn't see what happened. My thought was, um, I really need to go get to cover. That really changed the tone of things. Protesters who up to that point had been sticking with their friends or just in pairs and kind of focusing on their chants and their signs and whatever rocks they were throwing, you know, the individual actions they were having to do, they were really taking care of each other and trying to drag each other into doorways. And from there on out, um, we really moved as a pack more than anything. Um, police, that's the first time that I saw police come up from Calhoun. A couple officers came up to interview the folks at Hall's Chop House. And I think having the police up there especially got the protesters to, um, kind of regroup a little further north. And from there on, uh, a lot of other shops were also, the windows crashed and a few broken into. We've had a lot of reports from business owners who said they were not aware this was happening until they started hearing windows breaking right so they didn't they didn't really have a, a warning um and then also said that when they called for police they 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 didn't get a response and they didn't see officers around their own businesses so is that what you saw too i knew you saw you said that police were mainly staying uh near the francis marion by that intersection of of calhoun and king street D did it take a while before more officers were moving up the street or was there a stretch where it was where there really wasn't a police presence from what you could see there was a long stretch with not much police presence Sometimes officers would come by in a car, just one or two at a time, to check out, you know, there were small fires, and obviously when the shots were fired, they responded to those instances individually. But I personally didn't see a big group of police press up and try and clear King Street until probably after midnight. So up until then, we had some shop owners and Hotel Bennett guests and restaurant goers were really just in the street kind of yelling for help. And, and Greg, I know that you, I'm trying to remember what time you went down there. Cause of course I was, we were all, you know, following along, but, but when did you come down and, and what did you see when you got there? So, so I came down um, with another photographer, Andy Whitaker around 11 o'clock. And so we, we parked by our newspapers parking lot, um, you know, King and uh, King and, and Columbus and up there, you didn't really see anything. You saw some groups kind of moving back and forth. You know, within two blocks or so down by Cannon Street in King, you started to see broken glass. And as you pressed deeper down into King Street, you really started to see more groups of people, no law enforcement or firefighters or anybody anywhere near that. Now, by the time that Andy and I started, I want to say it's five, six blocks down, maybe, maybe five blocks down, we came across a, a, a across a West Elm store that protesters must have just broken into there, and they had set a small fire. It's a furniture store. We stayed there, literally just watching as this fire started to grow, smoke poured out, and maybe ten minutes later, two fire trucks arrived. Basically, what we saw was, you know, what Sarah said: no, no real police presence up in that area until maybe 145, you know, 130, 145 in the morning. I remember passing by uh, 
you know, there's there's two ice cream shops within a pretty close distance distance of each other. There's Republic and there's Jenny's, and at least at the time I was up there, uh, they had not hit Jenny's, but we saw these protesters like it started with one guy just starting to smash up the window of Republic ice cream. And people were walking by going ice cream. Really? Come on. You know, it it was just like chaotic and random. What were people saying? And I know you just said that, that you had overheard, (laughs) but what, what could you hear? And did you talk with anyone? I know the situation was, was pretty tenuous, but, Uh, but did you end up speaking with anyone? Yeah. I, you know, people were, were generally actually pretty forthcoming. Um, I spoke with, with one woman who, who I think really summed up the, the frustration and the anger really well. She said that, you know, especially for the, the young African-Americans that were present in the crowd, uh, or in the in the groups around downtown Saturday night, you know, they're really a lot of them feel, she said, left behind by so many parts of our society. They don't have a lot of of, of opportunities to educate themselves. They don't have jobs. They don't have anything. And so her big point was was you know when you put someone in that situation, what exactly do you expect to happen? Do you expect them to buy into um, maintaining peace and order forever. And, you know, she, she wasn't really excusing or condoning, but I think her message really was like, try to understand their point of view and their anger and their frustration and, and, um, you know, sort of why people were going around looting shops. Like it's not an outlet or event for, you know, all those things. Yeah. So I want to I want to shift to Columbia in a moment, but I don't want to just leave the the Charleston conversation here because you know, in addition to this this what we saw Saturday night, we did see a full day of peaceful protests and peaceful demonstrations and uh I, I do just want to spend some time kind of characterizing what we saw during the day and and why people were out and what what you were hearing from people. So um can you can you tell us a little bit about that before we shift to Columbia? Yeah, so we, you know, when I said that we were coming off of the highway and going down to Emmanuel, that didn't happen until just around sunset. And from 2 p.m. up to that point, everyone had really just been marching around, uh, chanting. A lot of people had signs. And I didn't see much of anything that police, you know, took any issue to. Um, we do know that the Confederate monument down at the Battery was spray-painted, but really everyone was in one group. It wasn't scattered, you know, groups of five and ten like we saw on other days, and just really walked up and down the streets, um, engaged a lot with bystanders who clapped for them or tried to have conversations with them. A lot of groups were there giving out pamphlets, like the Justice Coalition. It, police at that point were just walking alongside them. There was one point in the afternoon on King Street when police lined up with batons. There were probably about two dozen of them and didn't want to let the protesters go any further south. And it was really interesting to see the protesters kind of just sat several feet back behind them and you know asked to be let through. One of them had a megaphone and they really shifted from the chants and the demands for justice and you know pain at George Floyd's death to their own experiences and what they have dealt with in Charleston so far and why they feel that they should be able to just walk down King and voice their pain and, you know, talk to people about it. You know, I was there for maybe 10 minutes and then police just stepped aside and let them through. It was a long day, but yes, for most of the day, we were really just walking around chanting, a lot of people were meeting each other and planning more peaceful protests for the rest of the week. And what did the demonstrators actually look like? Uh, I mean, just in terms of, you know, like age, diversity? Like We started off in Marion Square with probably half and half uh, white and black protesters. A lot of the white protesters were really young. They looked like they might be COC students or um, recently graduated. And that was a point of contention. The first person to pick up a megaphone and start the chants looked like a white man. 
And I talked to a black man who works at MUSC and was just headed to work and stumbled across the protest. He was really upset. He felt that it was hypocritical for white people to be there. He thought there were better things that they should be doing that would actually benefit the community. A lot of other black protesters there were um, talking with him. You know, they really appreciated any kind of solidarity, but it was definitely a discussion. Uh, People had different ideas about what more they should be doing, but they did all agree at that point. You know, people needed to be together, be voicing these same thoughts and concerns for black lives and just um, show some unity. I do want to switch to Gavin now and and what happened in Colombia, because I think throughout the course of Saturday, we saw a kind of a different story unfolding in Colombia. So, Gavin, can you can you tell us what you saw and experienced Saturday in Colombia? There was a planned march from uh, Columbia City Hall around 12 to the State House, where there would be speakers and people could gather and demonstrate. And so that was pretty special. I mean, I think it was at least a thousand, it seemed like. I mean, it was pretty big. There's an image I took that particularly like of one of the speakers, Johnny uh, Cordero, and he's surrounded by all these people on the state house steps. It's just like, it doesn't happen often. So it was like to see that like in person and like in anywhere else I've lived, I've never seen that before. And then I know in Colombia, we had some reports of arrests and violence well well before that happened in, in Charleston. You're describing this scene a really, uh, it, it seems like a pretty inspirational and, and positive scene. Did you see things change or were there just maybe parts of the crowd that were having um, different interactions? What did you see there? The whole time at the state house, it was it was peaceful. Everyone you know was uh, you know standing together, and so after the speakers had finished, uh, they decided to march to the Columbia Police Station on Washington Street. They march uh, through Main Street and uh, go down Washington, where there's a barricade in front of the police station where there's officers standing. At this point, the officers aren't in riot gear; they're just standing. By themselves and the protesters stand around the barricade and they're uh, chanting again and so they do that for probably half hour to an hour and then at some point water bottles uh, start to get thrown towards the officers and that's when they go back inside and a group of officers in riot gear come up that's when the barricades get knocked down a few protesters are able to get through and kind of get close. And I have another photo of a woman trying to speak with a black woman officer about how she's feeling and she's crying and trying to like make her tell her how she's scared and she's worried, you know, at that point, that's probably how it is for a good few hours. You know, the police are standing there, water bottles are getting thrown, protesters are young, but still peaceful. Like there's no rocks getting thrown, no tear gas has been thrown yet by the police. I think listening to Sarah, it like, seems like a similar situation kind of started, I guess, the real kind of confrontation between the demonstrators and police. But further down Washington Street, someone came up in a Make America Great Again hat. And so protesters saw that and immediately confronted the guy who was wearing it. And that's when I saw people rushing and I ran over police immediately just like it was the first time like they really like there was no barricade anymore they were like face to face in each other's faces it's in our gallery that uh, we posted uh, one of the officers um takes out his pepper spray and um uses it on a group of the demonstrators and that's when rocks start to get thrown at police officers and people now are starting to get more upset and agitated and like releasing their frustration with everything and the police start to back away and as they're backing away the protesters are moving forward and they're throwing rocks and that's when they start damaging police vehicles that lined uh, the end of washington street once they start doing that the police immediately turn away and then more officers and right gear come and kind of surround the vehicle i'm still trying to process it now kind of like how that developed so it, uh, it was me, um, 
a couple other photographers photographing this police uh, riot gear around this car. When um, what I heard, I heard um, like the sound of like the less lethal shotguns getting fired, and that's when the crowd like disperses and kind of runs in all kind of directions. And that's when like officers now are like telling people to like move. They're screaming at people. Um, at this point, I'm not really sure what was going to happen next because uh, everyone just kind of ran, and so I went around the street to go back up to the police station. And I think one thing that didn't help with Saturday is a lot of people coming and kind of antagonizing the demonstrators even more. Um, there was a moment while, when I was walking back up to the Columbia police station where I saw this white man with a shotgun out on the street and he's yelling at protesters and protesters yelling at him. And it seems like there's yet to be a confrontation and I was not sure what was about to happen in that moment, but he goes into the building there. Protesters keep moving and they go back to the Columbia police station where the police presence is a lot heavier, protesters are a lot more angry. And so it stays like that for another good couple of hours. I left at this point to grab my uh, laptop so I could file uh, photos when... Um, I get a Slack message from um, Jessica Holdman saying that they've set a police car on fire. And that's when I get back. And that's when I see um, three, I think two or three police cars uh, spray painted, you know, damaged and set on fire. And that's how it stays for a while. And I go into the parking garage that's in front of the police station. Uh, there was another police vehicle in the garage Demonstrators, I guess, someone set that car on fire, and now it's um, starting to explode in the parking garage, and smoke is filling the parking garage, and that's when police started to push now, I guess, the, the protesters away from the garage, and the crowd dispersed and went further into the Vista. The group I followed then went to assembly and you know, kind of blocked it off with uh, trash cans for a little bit. And that's when the police start taking, you know, more action, start chasing people and trying to arrest people. All of this happened on Saturday. We are yeah. recording this episode on uh, Wednesday, June 3rd. Let's talk about for a minute what we've seen since Saturday. Let's let's start in, in Charleston. So actually, I'll, I'll hop in there on, on Sunday. Um, it was very different. In, in Charleston, I would say there was a much larger police presence, but much fewer protesters and a, a really different group. I mean, it was it was an extremely young group comparatively on um, Saturday. I saw people really of of all ages. But on Sunday, um, it was a lot of very young protesters, um, peaceful from from what we could see, but more arrests were made Sunday um, than there were on Saturday, and a curfew was was put in place. A curfew was put in place Saturday too, but not the curfew was not put in place until nine p.m. and the curfew was for eleven. And as we heard from from Sarah, a lot had already happened by nine p.m. Um, so on Sunday they set one for six. I was there when they when that curfew took effect. There was a, a not very large group of of protesters left on Meeting Street. There was a line of police. Um, there was a a tank vehicle there as well. They were using um, you know a, a loudspeaker to say you know curfew takes effect at six. If you are out after, you know, you're subject to arrest. And like I said, this was a really young group for they, for the most part, scattered after that point. It, it was a strange thing to see, to see that many police and so few protesters at that point. Um, it, it was a really, it was a really, really strange thing to see. But um, of course, protests have continued throughout the week. And, and Greg, I know that, uh, well, you and Gavin uh, were in North Charleston on on Monday. So, so we kind of have, we have Saturday, a really long day of 
peaceful protest, um, hundreds of people in Charleston. Uh, the last, you know, after after dark is when we saw the vandals, and we have Sunday, which, like I said, was very different much larger police presence, but also much fewer protesters. So then what did things look like on Monday when you went to North Charleston? We got to, uh, to North Charleston City Hall, which was like the main gathering place for the beginning of this protest. And, and protesters started to, um, to kind of start to trickle in. Very soft ballpark figure here, but eventually reaching, I would say, around 200 people. So... Immediately, it was sort of basically tension kind of built between police and protesters, but there was kind of open dialogue between them. Uh, at one point, um, you know, there were a few uh, people from police leadership down there, uh, deputy chief and the assistant chief. Um, chief Burgess, however, uh, couldn't be down there to help mediate because he is having to uh, to self quarantine uh, due to possible coronavirus exposure. So he um, presumably was at home, um, unable to to come out and help. I guess with the situation, but they had him on the phone. They're kind of negotiating back and forth. The space that they had gathered in was pretty small, um, and you know people were kind of jammed in there. There wasn't really a lot of, of social distancing going on. And that really worried the protesters. They're like, you have us hemmed in here. You know, people might get sick. Like, let's figure something out. So they're talking. Eventually, police put up crime scene tape, uh, really cordoning people into this very small area. And so the, the protest organizers just sort of decide to start the rally. And they, um, you know, they started with some chants. And they also had a, a list of demands um, including like dismantling the prison system, dismantling the current education system. Uh, basically, their, their core message was that the black community is still held under bondage and they seek to liberate the black community. The protest really actually was quite diverse. There was you know, a lot of, of, of young African-Americans there, some older African-Americans, uh, people of all ages there. There were kids there small children. Um, there were some clergy there. A few politicians were there. Eventually, after uh, I would say an hour and a half or so, they decided to march down the street. We ended up on East Montague Avenue. For the most part, it was pretty orderly. And then at some point after we crossed uh, the freeway overpass for Interstate 26, uh, something happened. I, I was toward the middle of the pack uh, so I didn't see what happened, but something happened that made protesters basically decide to block the street. And so they blocked the entirety of East Montague, both directions. It, it was a pretty tense standoff. I, I don't know, uh, you know your thoughts on that, Gavin, but the, the mood was pretty tense there. Yeah, I think at that point, once they kind of said, disperse or you'll be arrested, I think that's when it got a little tense. Organizers kind of at that point kind of directed people kind of on each side and yeah. started directing everyone to walk back. They, they split up to the sidewalks. Yeah. Um, and I should mention too, this was the, the police were citing the 6 PM curfew, which had like, we had just hit 6 PM by that point. Um, and people did start to walk back and then officers basically moved in uh, pretty aggressively. Um, and then protesters threw water bottles and, and like Gatorade bottles back at them. And then it just, people started running, you know, at this point we're, we're on top of a freeway overpass. There's people running on the sidewalks in the middle of the street, uh, basically just sort of sprinting to, to avoid police. Uh, personally, I overheard a few, few officers sort of like it wasn't really a strategy of, of rounding up a lot of protesters, but they seemed to be targeting certain people within the group. And so, for instance, I heard them speaking about um, one person in particular, and they said, you know, that guy over there in the green shirt, within a few seconds, eight officers had swarmed him, tackled him to the ground, and uh, restrained him with zip ties. Tensions were very high. There were a lot of, of, of protesters that were like screaming at police, um, lots of curse words, 
Um, some of them were, were daring police officers to shoot them. The interaction has gotten a lot more tense, and also some of the tactics have gotten a lot more, I think, like Rick was saying, like very tactical and very aggressive in certain points. Like when we're walking back over the bridge overpass to North Charleston City Hall, everyone's walking it, and then they start like chasing people. Yeah. And uh, one of the photos I uh, have in the gallery from that day is – uh, one of the officers pushing to the ground, uh, one of the organizers of the the rally that day. And it's just like people are falling over. They're pushing people down, trying to make these very specific arrests of people. I'm not sure what what they were trying to accomplish with like, the arrests. Like there was one moment where a woman um, was standing for, for a moment in the middle of the street with her fist um, raised up and... They told her to keep moving, and she started moving, but then they came and arrested her. And that, that's a question I definitely wanted to, to raise and, and something I, I wanted to discuss is this question of how, how peaceful demonstrations escalate into something that's not so peaceful. And I know nationwide, I think we've seen a lot of examples where it does seem like, uh, you know, a demonstration is, is peaceful or, you know, mostly peaceful. Um, up until the point when police get involved. You know, at the same time, we've definitely seen a lot of criticism here locally of the police response Saturday night, which um, particularly some some business owners on Upper King feel was kind of muted. And I, and I know the, the governor's also criticized that. What, what, what have y'all seen in, in terms of how, the, how these things escalate, it, you know? I think for me on Saturday night, uh, I didn't notice any moment at which police seemed to escalate something, you know, when they weren't responding to something else. Um, the the big moment that stuck out to me was when the protesters went after one guy and the police dragged them off. But the police were really aggressive at that point. They lined up in two rows with batons and kind of, you know, started at opposite ends of the street and walked closer to each other and squeezed us in. Um, when we got up to Marion Square, tear gas was deployed, it seemed, um, just after some water bottles were thrown at them. And it wasn't until we had been gassed for um, probably a couple hours that people went up to Hotel Bennett and started throwing rocks through the windows. So, yeah, it was it was really interesting to see that happening, especially we started off the night with police on the line at Calhoun there. and throwing the canisters at specific groups of protesters who were throwing water bottles back at them. And it was really just across the intersection was the only distance. You know, once protesters were stepping in and kicking and throwing the canisters back, that's when it seemed like people were ready to start throwing other things as well. It seems like that's a pattern we're seeing across the country, protesters throwing water bottles and that getting returned with tear gas or uh, rubber bullets, pepper bullets, right? I mean, that, that seems to be this this pattern, something like a, a water bottle. And then the return is, is obviously something quite extreme. Like I said, on, on Sunday, Sunday was especially strange since, like I said, it was uh, smaller groups and and from what I could see, peaceful, but tear gas was being deployed uh, quite a bit. I mean, throughout the day, Greg and 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 Gavin, I, I know you spoke to this a little bit, but the arrests that you were seeing in North Charleston, you're saying they they seem to be going for specific people. Was there any clarity as to the the reasoning why those particular right. people? So. That is something right now, unfortunately, I don't have the answer to. And I actually just pulled up this, uh, this email that I sent to one of the deputy chiefs at North Charleston Police Department um, yesterday uh, in the morning asking precisely about that, um, you know, about their strategy. Um, you know, I, I told him basically about the concerns raised by protesters about what seemed to be overly aggressive practices. Um, and you know, could he help explain why those decisions were made? Now, I haven't received any um, any reply to these questions yet, at least as of now. You know, on the on the subject of these kind of 
tactical arrests. Um, There's a a video uh, from Charleston from Sunday. Um, It shows a a demonstration that was happening in Marion Square during the day, um, or a portion of of the demonstration. And what it shows is uh, a group of, of demonstrators, they're kneeled down, and there's one person in particular, G. Jordan, who is shouting these messages of like unity, you know, trying to kind of bridge the gap between the the cops that are in front of of these these demonstrators who are kneeling. And then what happens is it looks a lot like the cops just come and single him out, the the guy who's who's talking and arrest him, but not the other people in the crowd. And and the video has just exploded on the internet. It's gone viral like worldwide. Actually, Emily and I had an opportunity to interview G. Jordan earlier today. And uh, I think I wanted to go ahead and just play some of that interview now. And then we'll we'll come back and, and discuss some more what, what went on. So I'll just start by, by saying um, that we are talking with someone today who one of our reporters interviewed this week. And there's been a huge response to this story. Uh, he was part of a peaceful protest in Marion Square on Sunday. Um, so we'll go ahead and have you introduce yourself. Okay, well, my name is Pharaoh Almighty, Pharaoh Almighty, a.k.a. G. Jordan. And I'm the guy who is in the peaceful, silent, I won't really call it a protest, but I was just trying to get everybody to understand each other and promise to grow together as one. So there was a, a video of you that day, and that's kind of what exploded, right? As someone recorded you mm-hmm. and the interaction that you were having with, with police officers, what you were saying. So can you just describe for us what what happened there? And um, I know you were just saying wh- why you wanted to be there, but what, from from your memory, happened? So I knew one thing. I knew if I show these people respect, no matter who they are, looters, protesters, cops, I don't care who it is that walk past me. If I show these people respect, if I show these people honor, if I show these people understanding and, and compassion, I would be all right. And all people with this whole thing, people just want to be heard. That is all it is. That is all it is. People just want to be heard. So people do things to be heard. I saw them protesting and then it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And I was like, okay, this is, this is real out here. You know, <laughs> like it's getting real out here. And then I saw the cops coming and they had their bats and they, and, and they had their chant with the, Ooh, Ooh, you know, like the pop chant. I don't know what kind of chant it is, but, but, but they were doing that. And then the protesters started doing their chant back. I truly feel what it is like for my ancestors to go through this stuff on a daily basis. As the cops came around, I, I actually had to turn around. That was the one flaw in my plan. I was facing the wrong way. So I had, so I had to turn around and kneel. And then, then it really got intense. Then people started charging the cops. The cops started charging people. And then, then you had tear gas. And then you had rubber bullets. You had, like, I think it was pellet guns or BB guns. And I think you had paintball guns. And then you had the bats. And then you just had so much going on. And this is all happening. I'm in the middle, right? Like, dead smack in the middle of Marion Square. And this is all happening. I Like, bullets are flying past me. Not real bullets, but, you know, fake bullets are flying past me, paintball flying past me, tear, tear, tear gas right in front of me. People people are, are running like right beside me, like almost knocking me over. But I was like, no, don't, don't be afraid. It's time to be grounded. Now is the time to be grounded. And now is time to show the world what we can do when we face this together. So I stayed. And I think when people saw me stay through all this chaos, it was like, whoa. Like how like how is he doing that? And so more and more people just started kneeling with me and kneeling with me and kneeling with me. And then I started crying because I'm like, wow, this is this is this is touching. This is big. This is huge. Like getting people you don't know at all just to come to come together as one. This is one of the first times I've seen everything just stop. This is one of the first times I've seen all the violence just stop. Still, everybody just stood still. Everybody just silent and just really listening to me. 
it was like my mind, my body, my spirit, I was just all connected and it was just automatic. And I was just saying stuff to try to get people to unite. Yeah, so I want to I wanna ask you about the, that moment in particular, the, uh, the, the moment that was captured on video. And it's now been viewed over 7 million times on, on social media. You, you were kneeling and you were talking to the, to the police, right? And you were oh. saying all, all of these things, all of these messages of, of peace and unity. What do you think motivated the, the police to, to come and actually arrest you? Do, did you feel like they were targeting you in particular? or? Um, I, I don't really know for sure because, you know, I'm not them. I, I can only guess. But my guess is that, for one, I didn't have a permit, you know? So that's my bad. I have to know the rules. So next time I do something like that, I have to be smarter about it and I have to be better about it and I have to know all the rules so everybody's safer in the process. And also, I think that the curfew was was coming because it was five o'clock. And I know that maybe if I if I kept talking or whatever, what, what, what was happening, we, we would have stayed past past the curfew. You know, so that's another thing you got to take into um, consideration. And then also that there was more people. I don't know if y'all saw in the video, but there was like 100 to 200 more people coming right when I was speaking. Yeah. What what happened after after the, the video ended, how were you treated by the police? And, and I know you ended up spending a night in, in jail. Is, is that what happened? Can you yeah, that, tell us about that? Yeah, that's what happened. I was actually treated with respect. That's that's the big word. Even though they did arrest me, even though maybe a couple of the cops were a little rough, you know, but the other cops I talked to, the, the other eight cops I talked to out of the two or three, whatever, uh, how many there was, they were all nice to me. They all treated me with respect. We talked about Family Guy. We talked about anime. We talked about kids. We talked about how long they've been on the forest for. You know, we like we talked about the situation, and 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 we, we was able to do that because we decided to be vulnerable. Have you been out since since then involved in any of the other peaceful protests, or or do you plan to participate again? I plan to participate, but I plan to do it a better way. Well, thanks so much for sharing with with us today, um, and, and also with uh, just just the paper in, in general um, about your story and your experience. Mm. And we really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate everything y'all have done for me as well. Just spreading my name and everything, and, and y'all have changed my life as well. So much appreciate, much love to y'all as well. Thank you so much. So, Sarah, you just wrote an an update yesterday, so this would be Tuesday, about a response from the ACLU of South Carolina. So we were just talking about arrests and um, kind of the the tactics that police have been using over the last several days. And this was in response to that, criticizing that, and also asking local police departments for an apology. So can you tell us more about what the ACLU said in their letter and have we gotten any response from police departments about what they think about their policing? Sure. So the ACLU sent this out yesterday afternoon. Um, it's a letter addressed to multiple law enforcement leaders in the Low Country. It's the sheriffs of Berkeley and Charleston counties, um, the police chiefs in Charleston and Mount Pleasant, and then the state law enforcement division chief. Um, they had a pretty long list of bullet points that they wanted addressed. This letter essentially was asking them to apologize for escalating with uh, the tear gas and the less lethal rounds and also um, for arresting a lot of protesters. So they demanded an apology for that, but also an explanation. They really just described what they had seen in these videos and from protesters and point by point asked, why did you choose to deploy tear gas at this point? Why did you choose to arrest this person? And what was the reasoning behind it? Um, the ACLU for several months now has been asking the state prison system and local jails to really think about arresting fewer people because uh, the more full a jail is, the more susceptible to a coronavirus spread it becomes. And so they also called back the concerns that they've been voicing for a long time on those fronts saying, you know, not only is this a violation of constitutional rights to 
get together and protest peacefully. Um, we're really putting the larger community in danger. Um, obviously, we're seeing what looks like a pretty strong second wave of coronavirus in South Carolina, and the ACLU is concerned about that as well. As of uh, Wednesday morning, I hadn't received a response from any department except Charleston County, um, and I didn't get a response to uh, the questions that I had. Um, just they were, you know, touching base and asking about our deadline. So we don't really have answers from any of these leaders. We did have a press conference that was supposed to be scheduled for today, where we had expected some kind of addressing of these concerns, but that has been postponed until further notice. So there, there's one last thing I really wanted to talk about, which is that we've seen a lot of, of people commenting on and, and sort of comparing and contrasting what we saw Saturday with what we saw in the wake of the Walter Scott shooting several years ago and what we saw in the wake of, of the Emanuel shooting, uh, you know, a short time after that. You know, the, the history of these issues in Charleston is is really big and, and complex. We tried to address some of this in another podcast called The Thread, um, which you can find. And I, I hope that's a, a helpful listen to anyone that wants to to try to kind of understand the, the history of of these relations in the city. But I, I did want to talk about that. Briefly, because, you know, we now have the, the benefit of some time to look back on it. And, you know, I think the, the basic question that a lot of people have been asking is, you know, what changed? And I think maybe the simple answer is that not much has changed. And that's kind of the problem. I wanted to just kind of talk a little bit about that. What, what we've seen since the, the Walter Scott shooting and, and since the, the Emanuel shooting and you know, what has and hasn't changed in, in our community. And I guess to start, uh, Greg just recently wrote a piece on the the fifth anniversary of, of Walter Scott's killing. And I wonder, Greg, just for anyone who might not be familiar, can you just describe for us what happened that day about, about five years ago when he was right. killed? Walter Scott was... Uh driving a car on um, in North Charleston in April, early April of, uh, of 2015. And uh, he was pulled over by, and Walter Scott was a African-American male. He was pulled over by a white North Charleston police officer uh, named Michael Slager. The reason the, the officer gave for pulling him over was that one of his taillights was not working. The officer goes to his car and, 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 you know, asks, you know, for the standard paperwork and all that. It's a, a pretty standard stop at that point. Um, Walter explains that he was in the process of, of purchasing that car used from someone. And so the officer goes, okay, that's all right. You know, let me just take your driver's license and, and run you through the system. And so the officer walks back to his, his patrol car and, and starts running that stuff through a few seconds later, you can see the driver's side door of Scott's car open again, and he just runs. The officer calls it in. He says, you know, suspect fleeing on foot, chases Scott, and there is uh, kind of a little service road or a, a basically a neighborhood cut through a little ways down Craig Road where, where, where Officer Slager had caught up with Scott and then at some point there's a scuffle, a physical struggle that starts on the ground. And that is in part what made this case so contentious. So and the original story that, that Slager gave was that Scott tried to get a hold of his taser and use it against him. Anyway, at some point during this ground struggle, a bystander named Fidian Santana comes by and starts recording this struggle on his phone. And this now infamous video shows Scott disengage, get off the ground, and start running. And then Slager gets up as well. You can see the taser bounce on the ground a few times. The taser wires are dangling, and you see Slager pull out his service weapon, his pistol, and shoot Walter Scott in the back as he's running. Scott was several, you know, at least uh, 10 feet away at that point. He fires eight shots. Uh, I believe it was five shots that struck 
Scott, killing him. Uh, Scott falls to the ground. And uh, at some point, a few seconds after, uh, Slager can be seen sort of coming over Scott's body and picking up the taser, and then he drops it again. And so that is the picture of the immediate kind of what happened during that shooting. And, and for a few days after, or uh, just a couple of days after uh, police and, and, and Slager came forward with that initial story of he, you know, fled from the stop and then uh, he, you know, struggled for the taser. There was a fight for the officer's safety. Um, a few days after the shooting, I wasn't on staff at the post and courier at this point, but the way that that uh, this happened was, you know, we got word, we being the paper, got word that there was a video and that it disproved um, the official police account of what occurred. I, I, can, I can speak to that a little bit. Um, one of the things that happened in the wake of, of that, you know, is that we, we did not see any kind of um, violence in our community. And that was something that people were afraid of. And there's a lot of praise, I, I think, that local officials got for the way that they handled it, because they, you know, they did act very swiftly and and charge um, Michael Slager and, and fire him. Um, but I do think it is important to remember that that happened after we obtained and published the video. Yeah. And up until that point, you know, th- this wasn't um, an incident that was. In question, and in fact, our, our own paper even credulously reported on you know the original version of the story that that, that you described. You know, like, like I was saying earlier, I, I think the 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 community's response to that w- was very much that you know you can feel however you want about the actions that Walter Scott took and and whether it was wise or not. But you know, the the bottom line is people shouldn't die because of a broken taillight, you know? And here we are five years later in in 2020, and we see George Floyd die in police custody over, you know, an allegation of of a forged 20. And I think that's the the issue that we're we're running into, is that, you know, the, the hope is that you see a reaction to something like Walter Scott and that that's going to lead to systemic change. Right. But like I said, here we are in, in 2020 right. and we see something similar happen. And, you know, it, it's just to a, a name in, in a string of incidents right. that have happened since then. So and, it, it's not even isolated. Right. And, and I can speak um, to, to sort of what, you know, has and has not happened in, in the interim. So to, you know, in the immediate aftermath of, of that video being published, there were basically a series of, of kind of private meetings between local activists, you know, law enforcement people. And, you know, to be clear, there was a lot of anger in the community uh, at oh, the yeah, time. Yeah. And, and you know, in speaking with, with activists that were working essentially behind the scenes at that point, um, you know, they all said, Charleston, you know, certain... Uh, groups in Charleston, certain segments of the population, were ready to riot. Absolutely, one hundred percent. But they were successful in in calming them down and um, and and really striking a deal to, you know, with promises from leaders about like, no, this stuff will change. We were going to do certain things, and um, I think what we've seen now is that. Um, you know, to use uh, maybe a specific example, short about a year after Walter Scott, the, the shooting happened, a group called the Charleston Area Justice Ministry called on the Charleston Police Department and the North Charleston Police Department to conduct an independent racial bias audit. Um, and there was immediate resistance to from both uh, from from both cities to do that. Charleston eventually did the audit, but all activists I've spoken to and frankly, city council members uh, in Charleston said, no, there was a lot of resistance. It took years of, of pressure, consistent pressure and um, 
you know, at city council meetings week after week to get Charleston uh, officials to vote for this audit. Now they did that last year and the audit was completed and it uncovered um, not racial bias, but racial disparities in uh, two key um, kind of areas, uh, traffic stops and police use of force. So essentially the audit found more black drivers are pulled over than white drivers and police use force much more against black residents than white residents. Uh, the audit also found a number of other systemic issues, uh, lack of proper training or sufficient training, lack of community development, that sort of stuff. Um, and it made uh, several dozen recommendations for the department to implement. And I think, you know, after that audit was done, um, you know, it's received praise from from people in the community, from activists. It was really a, a kind of a process that engaged, you know, segments of of uh, you know, essentially minority communities in Charleston that really have felt ignored and um, and left behind for a long time. Now, in contrast to that, North Charleston has thus far completely ignored, um, or at least has not approved any sort of audit. I did a story recently about, you know, how that process has been going. After Walter Scott, uh, the city call, basically called in the U.S. Department of Justice to do a... Um, uh, you know, an investigation of the department to, um, you know, at the time under the Obama administration, the just administration, the Justice Department was going into police departments around the country and um, and essentially doing deep probes of their practices. Um, North Charleston requested that to happen, and uh, in 2017, just as that report was getting ready to be finalized and signed off and released. Um, the Trump administration basically put an end to that program of collaborative reform. And so that report, which was supposed to be 601 pages, never saw the light of day. Um, Senator Tim Scott even wrote to um, then Attorney General Jeff Sessions asking for that document to be released, never was released. I think in speaking to uh, not only activists, but, but people on the ground, you see a lot of frustration with the fact that things really have not changed, even though leaders say they're working on stuff or they've made certain changes. And um, in North Charleston, there have been some, you know, there've been definite efforts by that police department to shore up community relationships. We have, um, you know, current chief Burgess, he, you know, has been out there on the, you know, not currently because of coronavirus, but in the past, he's been out there on the streets leading peace marches, um, and he has highlighted a lot of efforts that he's done. But I think in the eyes of of many people in the community, and certainly among groups like the Charleston Area Justice Ministry and the NAACP, that's just simply not enough. And on that note, you know, these these are really complicated issues, and there's much, much more to discuss here, and I think we could spend the rest of the day yeah. talking about it. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, we uh, we do have to end this episode at, at some point and uh, go out there and continue reporting on what's happening right now. I mentioned earlier, we, we did a serial-style podcast in the wake of the Walter Scott shooting and the Emanuel shooting. It's called The Thread, and it myself and, and Caitlin Bird tried to examine the history of, of some of these issues. We interviewed a lot of experts, local activists, um, historians, or at least I hope it would be a, a useful listen to, to anyone that is interested in, in learning more about why we're where we are specifically in our community. Before we leave, um, I want to thank Sarah, Greg, and, and Gavin for, for joining us. Um, can you all let our listeners know how they can get in touch with you or, or follow your reporting? Yes. So you can email me um, or Twitter DM me if you have any tips. I know a lot of people have videos from the protests or um, specific concerns that they want to address. Um, I am at S-M-L-C-O-E-L-L-O on Twitter. Um, and my email is S-C-O-E-L-L-O at postandcourier.com if you have anything that you would feel more comfortable sending through that. 
sort of same as Sarah, um, you know, y'all can email me. Uh, my email is attached to all my stories. Uh, or you can follow me on Twitter, uh, DM me, uh, tweet at me. My cell phone is also listed uh, on my Twitter account, and that is Gregory Y-E-E, Y-E-E, at, uh, at Gregory Y-E on Twitter. Um, and yeah, I got an open line anytime. Yeah, um, the best way to reach me is uh, my email at G-M-C-I-N-T-Y-R-E at postingcareer.com if anyone wants to reach out to me. And I just had one thing to add if that's possible. Yeah. Of course, yeah. I, th- I think one thing I think I heard yesterday at the North Charleston protest um, by this gentleman, uh, Michael Better, said that these protests and demonstrations and rallies aren't necessarily for... It is for George Lloyd, but it's also for the incidents that don't go viral. You know, the ones that we don't see, the ones that kind of get washed away or, you know, hidden. You know, these are for there isn't another George Floyd incident or, you know, another Walter Scott case, you know, for the people, you know, who aren't able to have their story, you know, out there and for them to get justice. So that's what I think that really like kind of encapsulate why a lot of people are out there is to really, you know, for these, you know, unknown, you know, miscarriages of justice. Definitely. Thank you again to all of you for your reporting and for joining us today. Listeners, if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for this podcast, you can reach us uh, by finding us on Twitter at UnderstandSC. And thanks to all of you for listening, and we will be back next week. Keep following along with our coverage of these protests that will continue. Just go to postandcourier.com. We are updating all the time. All right, and that's all. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier in Charleston. Our theme song is by Billy Fountain. You can stream his music by searching for Billy, that's with an I-E, Fountain, on Spotify. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. You can get in touch with us by emailing understandsc at postandcourier.com or, of course, you can tweet at us with any questions or comments. And if you're a fan of the show, please take a second to like us and leave a rating on the Apple Podcast Store. See y'all later.